Ballistic Chronicles. found Ballistic Chronicles, and this is episode number 105, in which we go back to one of my favorite interviews of all time. We recorded this in February of 2021, and we're bringing it back. Our guest is Heath Guns, a Marine, 10-year law enforcement professional, firearms trainer, outreach manager for HAVA, honored American veterans of field. We took the occasion of a bison hunt in Nebraska to go in-depth on Rifle scopes, hunting optics, reaction times, firearm training, defensive use of firearms, and the ethics of long-range shooting. We recorded this one right before heading out to the range where we each earned our Dismal River Club one-mile coin. If you want to support free speech and good hunting content in the internet age, look for our coffee and books at GaryLewisOutdoors.com. We have a new wildlife supplement coming up. You're going to find out about that real soon. And a couple of other things I'm really excited to tell you about. We recommend our latest book, Bob Nosler, Born Ballistic. You can find it on the website, GaryLewisOutdoors.com, and on Nosler.com and Amazon, too. You can watch select episodes of Frontier Unlimited on our network of affiliates around the United States and on Hunt Channel TV. Hey, guys. You are listening to Ballistic Chronicles. If you like the Ballistic Chronicles, tell your friends and check back here for the next episode. You can find Gary Lewis on Instagram at at the rate Gary Lewis Outdoors. And now here's Ballistic Chronicles. Good morning. I'm here with Heath Guns. Now, Heath has been a friend of mine for a long time. Heath is a former Marine, 10 years in law enforcement in one of the cities in Washington State. It's a city you've heard of. If you want to be in law enforcement, you probably don't want to go to this town. He has thousands and thousands of hours training younger people, older people in the wise use of firearms. There's a wealth of experience here. He is also the outreach manager for Honored American Veterans Afield, which is an organization that I've been associated with. Just on the outside from time to time, we we do something together. What we've been doing these last few days is hunting bison in Nebraska. Heath one of the things he will do is always stay in the background and he's always watching. You're not going to get him like they got Wild Bill Hickok. He killed his bison before we got here <laughs> so that the TV camera wouldn't be rolling on him. And anyway, it's good to have you here, Heath. And one of the things that fascinates me is optics and We've all brought our optics along on this trip. We all have a big catalog of optics at home and, Absolutely. and a lot of good stuff to choose from. Right. And one of the things that's fascinated me is how do you choose the optics that you use and why is it even important and why is it an issue? 
Well, I think, Gary, that, that what happens most often is we buy whatever we're seeing in the media or our buddy owns or, you know, my granddad had had brand X. And so we kind of get a cult following and we don't necessarily understand what we're doing in terms of purchasing it. Getting optics. Okay, and so specifically today we're talking about rifle scopes, binoculars, spotting scopes. It, it all kind of runs together here. You and I yesterday were talking about why we like to have, why you like to have binoculars that have built-in rangefinder right. capability. And, you know, that gives you an extra second or two. Absolutely. When things are happening or when things matter. And with rifle scopes... A lot of them work really good when the conditions are the best, which is 95% of the hunting that we do. But in that 5%, which is at very early in the morning and very late in the evening, there's glass that performs well with glare. There's glass that performs poorly. Right. And I think that, you know, we've all heard it. You know, my buddy will tell me, oh, this thing is awesome. And, you know two minutes before legal shooting light was over and I could see as clear as day. And then somebody else like, well, man, I was in the stand a hundred yards away from you and I couldn't see the, the end of my muscles mm-hmm. through the optics. Mm-hmm. And most folks don't understand what that's all about. So part of it comes down to this concept of um, the pupil. Right. And what the pupil, how much light that the pupil can use. And so it's called exit pupil. If you turn your scope from 15 power down to three, wow, there's a a lot more light transmission there that gets to your eye. Right. Yeah. And, you know, scopes are a little bit, at least for me as the the consumer and not the engineer and not the designer and not the scientist, it's, it's a little bit like kind of voodoo magic, right? And we're not really sure why they do what they do, how they do what they do. The lens coding right. part it, of it. it you so, can geek out on lens coatings. Yeah, we. I think we take things for granted and just assume that Brand X is building an optic and it's going to perform optimally across the board, particularly in those shoulder hours that we hunt. Right before, you know, full sunup and right before full sundown, it's the biggest test of optics. Mm-hmm. And I think we just assume that everybody's the same and and they're not. Optics are not all the same. Okay, so then the way we buy optics typically is we go to a department store or we order from a catalog. In a department store, we've got this great fluorescent lighting or metal halide, you know, those big fixtures that hang down. And you look across the room and maybe you've got a full uh, 70 yards to look at in uh, 30-foot candles or 40-foot candles. That's not outside conditions. You're not ever going to hunt deer under right. that kind of lighting. Absolutely. And typically in that environment, Gary, they're going to give you a target that's got to, to observe the optics that's that's very, very, very distinct. It's very clear. Typically black lines on a white background of some varying thickness in the line. And so that's what they're asking you to use to determine the clarity of that optic. That's a better than perfect environment which doesn't replicate what we do in the real world. Yeah, there's no rain, there's no fog. We don't have clearly defined black and white lines at 210 yards with a buck coming out of, you know, the cedars. Mm -hmm. There's nothing clearly defined about that 
and an optic based on coatings, how it's dealing with light refraction, how your exit pupils, all of that stuff's playing into it. Some scopes don't even give you fine detail around the edge. Right. Maybe that doesn't matter to you until you're trying to see, confirm the number of points on this deer, you know, while you, just before you put the crosshair on, or maybe there's a doe and a buck standing there and you're trying to resolve the one that has the antlers on it. Man, it just brings back a whole bunch of goose bump memories for me. I mean, it's just, it's an interesting... Yesterday, we were out on the range, and one of the, one of the guides had grabbed my range-finding binoculars and pulled him up, and he's looking, and he's like, wow, that is the first set of range-finding binoculars or range-finders that I've ever looked through that didn't have a green tint. Oh, and yeah. what I've found is all the time while we're out here hunting, this is the, the guy talking, he said, I pull up a range-finder, and I get this blue-green tint, and I all of a sudden lose a huge bunch of clear vision mm-hmm. at what i'm trying to range mm-hmm. i get a good mm-hmm. range on it yeah but i can't really see what i'm looking at because that's a good this, point this tint so now we're talking about coatings yep. and, and but people seem to just take things as face value are. yeah you know i was in a class a number of years ago gary and put on by a big industry optics manufacturer and i was amazed one of the things they did is they took optics from all kinds of manufacturers so pretty much if it's out there for precision rifle optics, they had it. And they mounted them essentially on a two-by-four or on a tripod, so, you know, horizontally with rails on it. And they mounted eight or ten different optics all on this tripod early in the morning, facing this target that's specifically designed to test visual acuity or clarity, color, definition, all of those things. I'm not smart enough to tell you what the target was. I don't know what the science is behind it. But what I can tell you, Gary, is I'm looking through 10 different optics under the exact same conditions. And optic A was awesome with full sun glare rising into the optic. It was great. Optic B wasn't bad. Optic C was really, really good. Optic D was terrible. You know, everywhere we looked. And again, I've been shooting all my life. You know, 40 years of running a gun, most of that professionally. And I never took the time, Gary, to investigate why I didn't like X optic, or I just didn't like it. It didn't, I, it didn't see right. I didn't feel right. But I never understood that, based on coatings, based on exit pupil, based on lighting, based on conditions, different optics work better in different scenarios. And so I think, as as hunters and outdoorsmen, Gary, I think what we're really chasing is the broadest capability in the optic to allow us to be efficient and Mm -hmm, effective. mm -hmm. And I think we get so stuck in, oh, I'm going to drink, you know, great Kool-Aid that we forget that maybe orange Kool-Aid is going to go better with what we're doing. So, you know, if I'm going to hunt with brand X optic and I know I'm hunting in, you know, Nebraska, you know, we're out there yesterday morning going dead into the sun in the morning. If I know those are the conditions I'm hunting in, Brand X optic might not be the right optic. Yeah. Maybe I need to go grab rifle, whatever, with brand Mm -hmm. Y optic because I've taken some time and I realized that with real bright glare, brand Y optic gives me more acuity and more clarity than I get out of 
Brand X. Yeah. Okay, so here I am. I'm 53 years old, and I've been shooting my whole life. And one of the things that I've been noticing out here is that I still have pretty good vision. And I can see a long way. I can pick up movement and detail. Man, you don't take that for granted. You just, you know, you protect that. But also, I have the advantage, too, of knowing about the optics that I'm carrying and using and using the best. So as my eyesight degrades, and it is, that I'm still running in the sweet spot. Right. Speaking of sweet spot, I, I think about these guys that have the really good eye-hand coordination, this um, superior athletic ability that is really God's gift to a select few. Absolutely. And I am not there. I have the, uh, I have the shooting experience and, you know, years and years of hunting, but I'm not at that level and never pretended to be. I always, you know, I think about, I go back to the wild Bill Hickok kind of mentality where he survived until he put his back to a door against his better judgment to play a poker game. All those those years, you know, if, if we can believe uh, 10% of what we've been told from history, he survived because he knew for the guy was going to draw, he knew what was going on in that guy's mind and he shot that guy first. Right. And that to me is fascinating. I read the body language in animals. I know what they're going to do before they do it because I've seen... It happened so many times, but I haven't analyzed the gunfighters and why, what makes, what makes them tick? What do you think it was for a person like, well, Bill Hickok, or maybe some of the gunfighters you've known? Yeah. And and so there, there's a number of things. And so there's obviously a training component. There's a God given innate ability. There's, you know, proprioception and, and how finely in tune you are with, just exactly where your body's at and what it's doing at the time and how qu- quickly you recognize that. You know, one of the, the wonderful analogies that I I heard many years ago, Gary, is you think about that first day you got your driver's license, right? And I'm Gary Lewis and I'm on my own. Remember that. Right? And it was cool. And you thought you had the world by the short hairs. You're driving through town, rock and roll going on the radio, windows down, hair blowing when we still had hair. Would have been Def Leppard. Yeah, so yep. exactly. And all of a sudden, somebody fails to stop at a stop sign as you're entering the intersection. And Gary, you freak out. You absolutely no conscious thought. You stand on the brakes. The car starts sliding. You don't have an accident. You don't have impact. None of that stuff. And as you pull through the other side of that intersection, your leg is going like a singer sewing machine, and it's taken you hours to calm down Mm -hmm. and to get back to some state of normal Gary Lewis Mm -hmm. kind of function. Well, you fast forward now. We've been driving 40 years, and you now are pulling up into that intersection, and Gary, you've got a sense of what's going on that you didn't have at 16, and you're going to go... That car doesn't look like it's going to stop at that stop sign, mm-hmm. right? You got to be thinking. For for me, I guess I go back to I'm walking through the streets of Windhoek in Namibia in southern Africa. I was thinking two blocks ahead, mm-hmm. while the guys that I'm with, 
they were thinking five steps ahead. Right. And so I saw the people coming out of alleys and I knew which people were going to engage us. Mm -hmm. And then I positioned myself accordingly within the uh, group. Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, I'll use vehicle operations as a common base to talk from because almost everybody drives. Yeah. When you first start driving, Gary, everything is a conscious decision. Everything you do requires an active cognitive thought process for you to execute whatever, stepping on the brakes, accelerating, how fast, how slow, right turn, left turn. You consciously think about all of that. When we first start driving, we get cut off all the time. And and remember how angry that used to make you? Because, (laughs) you know, Oregonians must have a law that allows them to buy cars without blinkers. Right. Because nobody yeah. uses them, right? Well, yeah, I always put it down to, I grew up in Washington, right. I put it down to those Oregonians didn't have to take driver's ed like I did. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, you think about those struggles, and, and we don't even think about it now. All these years later, Gary, you're driving along, and you notice the guy two cars ahead of you to the right, glancing his side view mirror, and your brain says, oh, that guy's fixing to make a lane change. Yeah. yeah. Right? So you've refined your observation and it's no longer something that requires conscious cognitive processing you know Mm -hmm. you're not waiting to see that indicator his turn indicator to recognize that he's going to turn or he's going to change lanes your perception has gotten better it's gotten to the point where you don't even think about it and you notice it yeah same kind of thing moves forward when you start talking about the defensive use of firearms first time you shoot a, a handgun sometimes pretty scary And we focus really, 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 really hard on, you know, solid fundamentals because fundamentals have to happen. But then you take folks like Wild Bill Hickok. All of those gunfights had gotten to the point he wasn't thinking about the fundamentals. Yeah. His power of observation, his ability to determine what you were going to do before you did it based on body language, based on body position, based on... Eye placement, all of those things, no different than you noticing the glance in the mirror before that guy mm-hmm. makes his lane change. Mm-hmm. We talked yesterday about, you know, over, over the last 30 years of being in the firearms industry, I've seen hundreds of thousands of people draw firearms. Gary, I'm pretty intuitive. When you're going to draw a gun, your body makes the same motions and movements as 999 of those other guys. So I'm going to pick that up long before most people will based on what I perceive in your body position and how you're moving. So maybe a guy rotates his hip. Rotates his hip. You'll see a shoulder pick up. All kinds of things happen. You'll see an elbow kind of drive straight back. Uh. And Depending on where you're at, right? It's all about circumstances and consistent with where you're at. You know, if you're at the range and you see an elbow moving in a certain position, guys are drawing guns, you start to recognize that as a movement pattern. If you're standing in line at Safeway and the guy two or three people ahead of you in line makes that same set of motions, you're going to perceive that. Wild Bill's going to perceive that. He knew what you were going to do before you did it. Yeah. Those are the things that through training through observation, back to the car analogy, 
through exposure, we start to develop. We start to pick up this innate observation. Think about raising children. How many times did you know your daughters were fixing to step off the stairs and go tumbling downstairs and you weren't yeah. really even focused you, on the kids? Yeah, you caught but them. Just something happened and you're like, oh, I got to go grab my daughter. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Same kinds of things, but we get so focused. You know, I read Tactical Magazine and I got to be like this. No, take what we already do and apply that to the defensive use of firearms. Your body's intuitively wired, Gary, to survive. Okay, so now when we train with a handgun, because that's mostly what people think of when they think of a defensive... Because we can't carry rifles, Gary. Right. I know, and that's right. We carry handguns because in our culture, it's just not... Right. Happy, you know, to carry a rifle all the time. Well, and thank God that's still a a freedom we have in America. Yeah, that's right. So when we're when we're training with handguns, we focus on the front sight and we we build all these little uh, movements in that create muscle memory. And we go back to that muscle memory and training um, is one of those things you got to keep doing throughout your life. You don't just train and practice and then you got it. It's a, it's a diminishing right. skill. But what about this whole business of focusing on the front side? Well, I mean, so, and this is a controversial opinion in lots of areas in the firearms industry. And so there, there are some innate abilities that we have as people, you know, we're, we're designed to survive. We've got cognitive thought processes, and then we've got just kind of what we've come to call crocodile brain or baby brain, baby brain, you know, where you really aren't making any decisions. You're just simply doing something that's been imprinted in your, your psyche and your brain somewhere. I mean, the little old lady who picks up a 3000 pound car off of her baby, she couldn't train for that. Gary. Yeah. There's something in our takes survival system that takes over. Yeah. We can't replicate that in a training environment. It's really tough to do, to put somebody in that kind of stress that they shut down at that level that they're going to go out and pick up a car. Yeah. Right? So when you start talking about firearms training, we know that you've got to have a hold of the firearm, you've got to have good side alignment and good trigger press in order to be successful. Those are absolute requirements that have to be in place to be successful. Where that starts to fall apart, Gary, is when we go into that crocodile brain. Combat situation, for instance. Yeah. yeah. Um, or a hunting situation. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh-oh, that bear is charging me and it's going to kill me. Yes. At that point, your brain's going to take over. And focusing on that front sight is crazy. I mean, if you think about it, think about the caveman and the saber-toothed tiger, and he's going to kill that thing with a club. You think he was looking at the club? <laughs> he you, wasn't focused on the club. Right. Do, yeah. you, do you think Bruce Lee was focused on his fist as he threw a punch? Yeah. It doesn't work that way. We focus on that that's going to hurt us. Yeah. Okay, Jim Cirillo, one of the one of the last gun modern-day gunfighters. Many, many, many gunfights. Jim used to tell a story of his first gunfight he saw the storation, you know, all of the, all of the millwork and the firework on his 
front sight as if it were the only thing it, that existed in the world. Superimposed on a blurry Absolutely. bad guy. And something like 16 or 17 gunfights later, Jim says he never saw the front sight again. He had gone to what he knew, which was this, we pounded this front sight, front sight, front sight, front sight into him. He's a competitive shooter. He was a recreational shooter. All of the, So he had thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions of this front sight kind of methodology. Yeah. It worked for him the first time. Right. So I remember shooting a mule deer at, uh, with a 270 across a canyon. The parts that I came back with in my memory was I remember ranging it and I remember the sound of the bullet. <laughs> I don't remember the parts in between mm -hmm. because I went right to my sweet spot that had been ingrained in me. Absolutely. When I was still working as a police officer, Gary, we had a middle of the morning on a Sunday burglary in progress call. Just one of those weird deals. And I can remember racing up to this call, big horseshoe shaped driveway full of trees. And I pull up and I get out of the car and I'm peeking up the driveway and there's a Ford LTD there. The doors are open and this car is packed full of stuff. Oh man. And I'm you thinking, can put a lot of stuff in an LTD. Yeah. And I'm thinking, <laughs> man, I got this guy. Another officer pulls up and, and somebody comes out of the breezeway of the house. And so his hands are full, can't really see everything. So anyway, I take him at gunpoint and the other officer's taking him at gunpoint. And I'm giving this guy verbal commands, Gary. And all of this firearms training and all this stuff has gone on in my life. And I've got a 1911 in my hand and I can't figure out why I'm talking to this guy. I keep hearing the other officer's glock ticking like a, like a metronome. Really? Yeah. And, you know, some, show me your hands. Tick, tick, tick. You know, I'm, giving, I'm doing this stuff and, I, and my brain is completely freaked out because I can't figure out what's wrong with the other officer's gun. Well, it turns out, Gary, that I had gone completely crocodile brain. What I was hearing was every time I would utter verbal commands and it was time for the, the bad guy to, to do what I'd asked him to do, I was off-safing my 1911. That's what you were hearing? I was hearing my own self off safe that 1911 uh, while he, I was having the bad guy do what I had asked him to do. Wow. But my brain had gone so crocodile yeah. there, I couldn't tell you that's what I was doing. Mm. I thought it was the other officer. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know... Let's take that back to the front sight thing. Yeah. We know what it takes to be successful in the static environment of a range. Yeah. Right? It takes... Side alignment, trigger press, those are absolute requirements. Yeah. But I'm here to tell you, based on the best folks in the world, military guys, cops, law enforcement, that I've had the pleasure of sharing bread with and talking about these subjects, what we're doing on the range is fundamentally critical to learning, but it starts to fall apart in application if you only believe that there's one way. Okay, so this is this is what happens in a hunting situation when a hunter focuses on the target to the exclusion of everything else, they lose all ability to process what's going on around them. It's just the way we're designed. Absolutely. So yesterday we are stalking this herd of buffalo and the two guys that I am watching ahead of me are the guide and the hunter. Right. Both highly accomplished in Absolutely. their fields. One of them is 
a two-time Super Bowl absolutely football player. The other one is a Marine combat. Yeah, he's a 25-year combat Marine. Yeah, who's flown airplanes right? and forward air controller yeah. for special forces. Man, switched on guys. Yeah. So my job is just to watch the periphery mm-hmm. and because I know they're going to get the, the, the thing accomplished. There's also a focused cameraman who's super, super good, award-winning cameraman. Producer, my producer, Sam Pike, over their shoulder, they're so focused. Their focus has gone to one bison in a herd of 58. And they are now focused on one spot on that bison's body and waiting for it to turn and animals to clear. And that gives me, I can watch everything else. And in this environment, we're not going to be charged by a grizzly bear. Right. And we're not going to have non-target animals beyond the bison mm-hmm. to mess things up. But I, I see, I can see the big picture. Mm-hmm. And when you're a solo hunter, you've got to be able to switch from that that mode where you really pull down tight, and you got to remind yourself, oh yeah, there's a bigger picture here. Right. And people hunting in Montana have to contend right. with these inland grizzlies, which are probably the most fearsome creature in North America that's not afraid of them because they haven't been hunted for generations and generations. These are some of the things that as you hunt more, you're faced with and you're faced with the limitations that your brain puts on you. And it's what you call crocodile brain. Absolutely. And, you know, the the physiological response to extreme stress, the charging grizzly, the car accident, the use of force snare, the physiological response is, is virtually identical regardless of the specifics of the scenario. If you're feeling like your life is in jeopardy, you're going to revert to this crocodile brain. Mm-hmm. You know, fight or flight syndrome, there are a million different names for it, and everybody's got their own twist on it. But physiologically, same, 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 same. We're not using all of the brain power God gave us. Absolutely not. And, and I'd like to use a little more. We, of it, can do, we can do a little bit better. And so that's one of the things that this mania for long-range shooting has done for us in a positive manner is that we've learned some of us have learned to do math in a high stress situation and i hated trigonometry when i was in school right but wow now that i am out here in the real world applying it with a rifle and a scope and and um, ammunition i can do that math quickly in my head and calculate for you know, a 10 mile an hour wind mm-hmm. at 385 yards. And I was watching Trey going through all those processes yesterday. Right. That's something that's really difficult to come by quickly. It comes through, you know, in my case, it comes through long range shooting school mm-hmm. and then application and application. Absolutely. And I, I would agree wholeheartedly. And that's actually a really cool story, Gary, in that Long-range shooting has become a kind of a mania event. And the interesting thing in my mind is we are giving people a great set of skills. And there are some really phenomenal long-range shooters out there. Oh, man. Right? And hunters. Yeah. There are some great, great, great folks out there who are really dedicated to the craft. And then, when, when I grew up in Washington, and you grew up at the same time as me, if you could hit a pie plate, whatever that distance was, that was your effective range. Right. And 
We are so far beyond that now. We are. And, and I'll tell you, it, it's a beautiful thing. But I, I also see, Gary, the, the flip side of that coin is yep. there are those of us who are dedicated to our craft. And we work really hard to be the best we can be at our craft. And then there are those of us who read the most recent publication, go to the most recent school, drink some flavor of Kool-Aid, do all of this training on the, the static environment of a you know thousand-yard range. We're going to go out later today and shoot a steel target at bison at a mile. Or we're going to try. <laughs> right. And so what ends up happening, and we see this all the time, and I think if you ask your outfitter friends about it, they'll have stories ad nauseum that are just disgusting. We get folks who aren't so dedicated to the craft. They aren't so dedicated to understanding. And we give them in this long range training stuff, just enough skill that they become confident and think that I'm going to shoot that bull elk at 750 yards. Yeah. And what we end up finding out, Gary, is shooting a steel target at 750 yards prone on a, on a concrete walkway or bench or, with a known wind. With a known wind and being at 750 yards, the bull elk in, you know, on the other side of a canyon and all of the wind changing and, and the stress of humping up the hill and heart rate. I think, Gary, that for the folks who aren't absolutely 100% dedicated to being professionals in their craft, we're injuring animals. Oh, yeah. We're taking shots that aren't ethical. And I'm not saying that there aren't people capable of ethically taking a bull at 750 yards man i shoot a lot and i'm not that guy same, and i haven't met that guy yeah same here what i what i do is i love shooting targets at long range i just love it but i impose a rule for myself that i will not do that yeah. in the field i am a good enough hunter that i can get i can close yeah. that gap and and sometimes I can close that gap from 393 yards to 97 yards where I can just stand up and yeah. shoot it like a man. Yeah. I, 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 we talked about this the other day. A couple of years ago, I wanted to do a bull elk hunt in Montana, and I spent a boatload of money. I mean, I could have bought a new Toyota truck for the amount of money oh, I spent on man, this thing. Oh, man, hurts. And get out there, and Gary, you know me, I don't like to walk just for the sake of walking. <laughs> yeah. And, brother, we hiked in five days. We hiked 65 miles in the backcountry. The last hour of the last day, six-point bull, 705 yards. Mm. And I'm set up. I've got a great rest. I've got great dope. I've got great glass. I've got a great spotter. I've got everything could be perfect. Yeah. And I get on the gun, and the bull would put his head down and eat a little grass. And then he'd put his, pick his head up, and he'd walk a step or two. He'd put his head down and eat a little grass. And the guide says, Heath, shoot him. Hold on. He's got a got to settle down. He's like, shoot him. I said, this is over 700 yards. He is walking. It's going to take my bullet three quarters of a second to get there. Yeah. He takes one step and three quarters of a second. Yeah. And I just wounded this animal. Yeah. He says, dude, you know how much money you spend here? Yeah. I'm not taking this shot if he won't settle down and stop this kind of gentle grazing eating. Yeah. And the guy was so focused on the amount of money, uh, he's like, man, it's we, it's it. This is the last day. We don't have any more time, Heath. I watched you earlier this week hitting a 10-inch plate at 1,000 yards repeatedly. You mm -hmm. never missed it. Mm -hmm. 
This is a bull elk. It's at 700 yards. Shoot that bull. No ability for him to, to understand the difference between a 10-inch plate at 1,000 yards. Yeah. And if I miss that, who cares? Right. Wound a bull elk. The game is on. I break a shot. It's three hours for us to get over there. If yes. that thing doesn't just fold up and die, for us to verify, yeah, we hit him, maybe we didn't, right? Yeah. And, and that was really where I started to think about this. I have really good long-range skills. Sure. Steel plates aren't God's gift yeah. to the world. Yeah. Right? I owe it to that animal for it to be a clean, ethical, as much as I can guarantee it, kill. Yeah. And it's 700 plus yards in Montana at 15 degrees while they're grazing long. I can't make that ethical connection regardless of my skill level. You know, this is the golden age of technology for, for the rifleman. Absolutely. And we can't just turn around and, and uh, disregard that and disrespect that by, by taking marginal shots. Yeah, it, and everybody's got to draw that line a little bit differently and I'm not going to draw it for somebody else, but right. I, I got to find it out for yeah, me. And honestly, Gary, I am not saying that, that folks can't take that ethical 700 yard shot. Yeah. Cause I'm sure there are people out there that can do it. But what I'm here to tell you is I'm not that guy and I have a lot of time on a gun. Yeah. I know a lot of really, really accomplished hunters, hunters all over the world. I don't know one of them that would tell me that's an ethical shot. Hey, well, I think um, maybe what we should do next is go out to the range and uh, shoot a thousand yards. Because what do we have a buffalo target out yeah, there? Yeah, we got a bison target out there. <laughs> and, and I don't know about you, but I'm ready to have that Dismal River Mile coin. So. <laughs> yep. I don't know. I'm not as competitive as some of these other guys, but I can breathe and squeeze a trigger with the best of them. Well, I'm telling you, I'm going to have a first round hit at a mile. So there you go. Pack, <laughs> pack a lunch. <laughs>
And then the crystal clear for the optics. You'll love the crystal clear. I do. The starter kit plus is $59.95 and you can get it for 10% off if you order from them right now. So if you need to redo your cleaning system, take a look at Modern Spartan Systems. It's modernspartansystems.com and you can get 10% off your orders if you use coupon code Gary Lewis, G-A-R-Y-L-E-W-I-S. I also love their TVT engine oil additive. It'll clean your engine, extend your engine and oil life, increase your miles per gallon. I went from 28 miles per gallon in my high-performance Mustang last year when the price of gas went up. My miles per gallon went up to 31 miles per gallon because I was using the TVT engine oil additive. So give that one a try too. And again, you can use that 10% off discount coupon, Gary Lewis, G-A-R-Y-L-E-W-I-S, when you go to modernspartansystems.com. Besides the obvious immediate advantages to using the Spartan gun products, you should also know their stuff is green. It's non-toxic. It's American made. This is a very patriotic company. For me, simply cutting my cleanup time once treated was worth dumping the old stuff, making the switch. Once you get and start using the products, send me over your results. Tell me about it. Send me your reviews for us to share out here on Ballistic Chronicles. Yeah, check that out. ModernSpartanSystems.com. Use the coupon code Gary Lewis. Mm-hmm. 